Scripture Subi, so maybe a little bit further up now. Okay, there we go. Uh, Scripture Subi, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So you don't have a card. What we'll try to do is get some cards for you before you go, but they, we do have some in the cubbyhole. But here's the thing, reason why we're doing this particular passage. Think about it. What is one of the most important things that we must know and be very clear on in this church? What is the gospel? How does someone get saved? And we need to know that, and we need to know it by biblical truth, not just, here's my thoughts on that. And here's what the Bible tells us. So let's say this together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You get those two verses down, just those two verses, and you're understanding an amazing biblical truth that is by grace we are saved through faith. So let's do it one more time, and we're going to be working on that throughout the week. Are you ready? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Who do we boast in? We boast in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We boast in the cross of Christ. We boast in his salvation, but it's not our own selfish boasting. It is in the glory of God who has given us this amazing gift. So notice who he's writing to. For it is by grace you, you who are in faith in Christ Jesus, have been saved through faith. It's a gift. Praise God. Good evening, Subi Church. Our Bible reading this weekend is from Psalm 103, verses 1 to 14. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, <clears throat> abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. 
Amen. Just a, a couple of thoughts before we go into the Word of God. We give thanks again for those who serve the Lord, especially for our missionaries that we have the privilege of sending out. So for Chad and Rachel, it's great to have you here. We also want to uh, pray for one another. And we've been asking every week, let's pray for the situation in Ukraine. And we need to pray for that. We recognize there's this crisis in our world, and it's all over the world. Today we're going to be talking a bit about compassion, and what I'm going to ask you to do is, and I've been given permission to share this prayer request, is because many of the staff and the elders and so forth are aware that one of our, our fine elders in this church right now is in ICU. He's in a medically induced coma, and he's on life support. And so that's Gordon Jennett. And some of you say, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with Gordon, or you don't know him well. Uh, Gordon has been on the elder board for a long time. He's currently not serving, but Gordon was the main elder that was involved with Subi Renew. In other words, getting the building up. He's an architect, and he worked on a very small committee, and he was the leader of that committee and made sure that the building that we get to enjoy out there was a lot of hard work, and he stuck with it, and by God's grace, we get to enjoy it. But Gordon right now is in the ICU. They're giving him some drugs that are hoping to uh, stimulate his heart. He's had a couple of heart attacks. They will be removing him from life support tomorrow morning. And so the family is aware, and again, they've given me permission to say this, is basically they're aware his heart is going to kick in and he's going to live or he's going to go to be with the Lord tomorrow. And so we recognize that. And what they've asked us to do is just pray. And it's the right thing for us to do. And we trust in a good God and a faithful God. And we just ask him for help. So I'm going to share that with you as a prayer request. And I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me right now. Father, we read that passage from Psalm 103. As a father has compassion upon his children, so you have compassion upon those who fear you. Lord, I do want to pray right now on behalf of the, the Janet family, for Michelle, for the three children, for their spouses, the grandchildren, and Lord, for Gordon, who belongs to you. And right now, he, we know that he is in your care. And we do not know your good and perfect will, but we will trust in you, and I thank you for the faith of this family. Lord, this man is a man of God. He is loved by this church. And we just pray that your mercy and grace would be upon him. Father, you know our request, our heart's desire, is that when this life support is removed, that he will live, that he will be reunited with his family, that you will heal him. But Lord, we also recognize the seriousness of the situation. Father, we thank you that we can pray for one another, and we thank you that you care. Lord, we also want to pray for situations in our world, for Australia, for this major concern that is going on right now in the Ukraine. We pray for peace. We pray for those refugees, for those who have left 
homes and possessions and everything and for the opportunities that we as Christians have to serve others. And we do pray that your church would be salt and light and we would share in that ministry. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, we've uh, taken a break the last couple of weeks from this series on Elisha, taking God seriously. And let me just uh, mention something uh, so that you're aware. So we had a guest speaker from America last year, I'm sorry, last week, and um, we're in process right now. And we are in process, and there's a big task because that was all part of the senior pastor search process. But what I want you to do is not presume upon the outcome. It's going to take some time, some discussion, some dialogue, and some work. And so what we will not ask it, you have two things. These are two big asks. Number one, patience, because it takes a while. Anything takes a while. And then secondly, prayer. Pray for God's will. And even as you heard the Millers uh, speak uh, last week and share with this church, we're just seeking God's will together. And so if we can keep it on those points, so if you ask details or specifics, I don't know who has the answers to those things, but I certainly don't. But what we can ask you to do is keep praying and keep patience and trust the Lord for what he has for the future of this church. Serious compassion. That's what I want to talk about. Compassion is where I want to begin. So let me uh, tell a little bit about a, a woman who was pretty well known in the 20, uh, 20th century. Her name was uh, Margaret Mead. And so we have a, a picture of her because she was a cultural anthropologist, a pioneer in her field, and so much so that she got placed on an American postage stamp, and so that's Margaret Mead. Now, at one point, she's teaching and lecturing, and I want to show the next slide because I'm going to read this story, but here's how it goes. A student asked the anthropologist, Margaret Mead, what is the earliest sign of civilization? The student expected her to say, clay pot, grinding stone, or maybe a weapon. But Mead thought for a moment, and she said, a healed femur. You recognize what we're talking about. A femur is the longest bone of the body, linking to the hip, uh, the hip to the knee. In societies without the benefits of modern medicine, it takes about six weeks of rest for a fractured femur to heal. A healed femur shows that someone cared for the injured person, did their hunting and gathering, stayed with them, and offered physical protection, human companionship, until the injury could mend. Mead explained that where the law of the jungle, the survival of the fittest rules, no healed femurs were found. The first sign of civilization is compassion seen in a healed femur. Kind of interesting. But she is basically saying as an anthropologist, what does civilization look like? It looks like compassion. It looks like someone cares for another, that they're willing to sacrifice and not say, I'm only going to look out for number one. And not say this is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I'm going to care for someone who cannot help me, but out of compassion. I will care. Now, let's think about it. Does God care? Does God have compassion? Does he care about my circumstances? 
We're going to look at a, a story in the story of Elisha. And we're talking about this theme of taking God seriously, but we're going to, we're going to deal with a widow, just one woman in Israel, ancient Israel. And we don't even know her name. This widow's in debt. Her husband has died. He left a debt. And she has two sons. And now they're going to be claimed as slaves to pay off the debt. And she will be left destitute. Does God care for this unnamed widow? Now, we may think, well, we're 21st century. Our world is totally different than ancient Israel. What could I possibly have in common with this widow? And some of you are going to say, well, this is a nice story, pleasant story, but what do I have in common with the widow? Two things, at least two things. One, we need to take God seriously. And two, we need his compassion. I mean, I just shared a prayer request with the whole church. We need his compassion for this church and for a dear family in our church. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, just seven verses. But a story that I said is a delightful story. I love this story. But we need to enter into it and not just look at it from afar, but recognize I have something in common with this widow in ancient Israel. Stand with me as I read. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what, can, what uh, do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha <coughs> said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as, the, as each is filled, put it, in, <coughs> excuse me, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another jar. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. Verse 7. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. You may be seated. Two points. First, our weakness is an opportunity for God to show his compassion. Have you ever thought about that? Even in my weakness, God's grace is sufficient. And it is that time, that opportunity for God to show his compassion. So 
pick it up from the last sermon that I gave on Elisha. Remember, there were three kings, three armies that were in desperate need, and they were fighting another kingdom. So if you want to think about four kingdoms were involved. And at that point, the king of Israel, the king of the northern kingdom, comes to Elisha, and Elisha basically says to that king, I don't have the time of day for you. I'm not interested in you at all. He's the king of Israel. He's got a massive army. But because you're with the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, well, then I will listen. Remember the story. So we have four nations at war, and we think that's a big deal. I mean, God should care about four nations at, rule, at war. But now we come, the next story is to one widow and one problem. Does God really care? I mean, why should God even care about that situation? So the story is this. The widow comes to Elisha and explains her desperation. My husband has died. Now, you know he's part of the company of the prophets. He revered the Lord. It's a way of saying he took God seriously. You know that. But he has a debt. And the creditor is coming to take my two boys and to put them into slavery until the debt can be paid off. Just a few observations. Many would be aware there was no social security net there in those days that basically God had provided in his teaching, in the law, ways to care for those in need. And if you're familiar with the story of Ruth and Boaz, you recognize there could be a kinsman redeemer, a near relative who could come along and help a widow in distress. But apparently there's no kinsman redeemer. You also know there's this thing called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, all the debts are canceled. But apparently, that's not coming up anytime soon. So here's what's going on. She's in debt. The creditor, it appears, is within his rights to demand the sons work off the debt. The husband took God seriously. And the debt might even be because there was a price of following the living God in those days, just, there is, just like there is today. There's a double curse. You'll notice that. A double curse. Death and debt. Two things. Now, I want you to observe how the widow makes this petition, because I'm going to make a point here, and I want you to see it very clearly in the text. So in the middle of verse 1, this is what she says. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. You read the text. What's missing? What's missing? What's missing is she doesn't have a solution. Let me just put it this way. There's a number of times when I have been asked to see somebody, sometimes even coming in off the street, that wouldn't be unusual, and that person will come to me as a pastor in the church, and they will uh, start laying out their story, their misfortune, their bad decisions, and the things that they did that were perhaps very foolish that got them into a very bad predicament. 
And then they will come to me and they will say, now, pastor, here's what I need you to do for me. And they'll start laying out the things I'm supposed to do for them. Often, this is the first time I've ever met them. And I have to say, now, now, do you realize I wasn't involved in any of those previous decisions? And you're right. You made some foolish choices, a lot of foolish choices. But you made all those choices, and now you're going to tell me you have the answers, and here's what I need to do for you. Just pause and allow me to think about, is that the right thing to do? Because I get it. You got yourself into a mess but I'm not sure your solution is the right one either. Here's my joy as I look at this woman. As she comes to Elisha, she simply states the problem, not the solution. Well, couldn't she think of a solution for God? Well, God just needs to rain down some money on me. God just needs to make that creditor drop dead. That's my solution. That's a solution, right? I mean, you can think of a number of different solutions, but the fact is she doesn't name one, not one, because I think she takes God seriously. What do I mean by that? He's all wise. He is capable of figuring this thing out. He is absolutely capable of figuring this out. And so all she needs to do is not explain how God needs to help her or what he needs to do for her, but simply to say to Elisha, my husband is dead. He is in debt. And my sons are going to be taken from me. That's all she says. Taking God seriously. To me, it means bringing our, our problems, our concerns, our issues to the Lord. But it also means trusting him with the solution. Some people may say, well, that's kind of a wimpy prayer. No, it's a, a big prayer. It's a God prayer. It's saying God is big enough and wise enough. Now, I want to trust in the character of God. I'm going to go back to Psalm 103 because we heard that read, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 6, and I want you to notice what it says here as it applies to this particular situation. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. If that's true, and I believe it is, that the God I serve, the God I worship, the God I pray to is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, I'm going to trust that God. That's what it means to take him seriously. But here's where I want you to think about where you are right now. What are the areas in your life where you say, God, I need your compassion. I honestly need your grace, your compassion in my life. I've shared already with one of the dear families in this church. We're asking God for compassion, but we're trusting in the character of God. And that's what we're called to do. But here's the good news. Our weakness, our weakness is an opportunity for God to show his compassion. Here's the second thought. God graciously pays the debts of those 
who cannot pay, that we cannot pay. Now I'm going to work through this next part of the story, but I want you to observe the ways of God, how he's going to operate. I want you to notice that there was a double curse. My husband is dead, and I have a debt. But there's going to be a double blessing that's going to show up. And so look again at the passage, and I want you to notice how God's going to work. When Elisha says to her, how can I help you? What do you have in your house? It's kind of interesting. Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. So I've got, this is actually, I got this in Israel. It is a small jar of oil. It's anointing oil, but it came from the right place at least. It's a small jar of oil. That's all she has. It's not a lot. Verse 3. Elisha said, go around, ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. And then go inside and shut the door behind you and, and your sons. Pour the oil into all the jars. As each is filled, put it to one side. So she does exactly as he says. And finally she says to her sons, bring me another jar. And that's it. At that time, the oil stopped flowing. Verse 7, she went and told the man of God, he says, okay, here's what you need to do. Go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left. Let's talk about the ways of God. He starts with what we have. Do you ever notice that? He just starts with what we have. It may be meager, it may be a very small jar of oil, but he starts with what we have. Go to the neighbors. Ask for empty jars. Now, if she didn't have much faith in this plan, and she doesn't know exactly how it's going to turn out, right? If she doesn't have much faith in the living God or in the words of Elisha, his prophet, she may just go and half-heartedly look for a couple of jars and say, yeah, I've got you know, a couple, a few, three, whatever. But what happens is very clearly they find a lot of jars. Because we know the end of the story is that whole debt, the whole debt that would enslave two sons is going to be paid off. And so they spend some time, they put some energy into this because Elisha told them to. And they're going to take God seriously. And then we have this double blessing. You see what it is? So the double curse Death and debt, the double blessing, debt paid off. And not only that, is enough for them to live off. They have more than enough to pay off the debt. There is an abundance of provision that God gives, even beyond what she was asking for. Basically, is there any way that my debt can be paid off? And God goes beyond that, and so that he can say to so that Elisha can say to the woman, you and your sons can live on what's left. Now I want to talk a little bit about debt. Most of us know something about debt. Let me talk about the national debt in Australia for just a moment. Don't get depressed. The ATO is not here tonight. So, uh, so don't get depressed. But the national debt in Australia, according to the Parliament of Australia website, is 
$963 billion uh, that's in debt, gross debt. Population, approximately 26 million. So what does that mean? Every man, woman, and child in Australia owes how much? Do the math. Well, not quite, but $37,000. Uh, I don't know if that's good news to you or not, but $37,000. Every man, woman, and child in Australia. And if you had a baby this year, they owe $37,000 as well. So that's, that's the way it works. Okay, now, uh, for those of you who are Australian citizens, and, and I'm an Australian citizen, I owe that much, apparently. They're not collecting today, so don't worry about it. You don't need to get your checkbook out. Now, I'm going to encourage you a little bit, because I'm also an American citizen, I'm going to talk about their debt. Uh, Chad and Rachel, if you have dual citizenship, I'm telling you, you're with me on this. Rachel, you have dual? Okay, great. Chad, just American. You only owe this. Okay, America, $30.5 trillion. I don't even understand that number. $30.5 trillion in gross debt, according to the U.S. government Treasury website. Population of 333 million, which means, do the math, how much does each person owe? $92,000 per person. Now, if you want to put that in Australian dollars, that's $135,000 per person. So if you're just Australian, you need to praise God, you owe $37,000. I owe about $170,000. Rachel, you're with me on that. So that's what we owe. They're not coming tonight. IRS is not here either. But having said that, debt, we all need to recognize there's some debt going on in our world, and, and many of us know that on a personal level. Let me just give you, um, uh, and if you ever had credit card debt, you know how that, that can add up real quick, right? Here's a quick story about a credit card debt. The guy uh, calls up the police, and he talks to a police officer, and he says, my wife's credit card is missing or stolen, but someone else is using it. And then he says, but please, officer, don't look too hard for the thief because he's charging a lot less on the card than my wife ever did. <laughs> so there's, there can be a, a double blessing, I suppose. Okay, let's talk about debt. When we talk in terms of spiritual debt, what's our debt? It's a debt of sin. If you want to think about it in this way, we need to be redeemed from the slave market of sin. So there were two boys in our story, and because it was a financial debt, they were going to become slaves. But the Bible says that we have this debt of sin, and we need to be redeemed from that debt of sin, purchased out of that slave market of sin. And here's where the good news comes in, the gospel that comes in to us is that Jesus Christ comes and he pays that debt. Sin has no claim over me. The wages of sin is what? Death. You know the passage. Don't be embarrassed. You know the passage. The wages of sin is death. Now, here's the second thing. Death has no claim over me. So if sin has no claim over me and death has no claim over me, because why? Because the gift of God is eternal what? Life. You realize what God speaks into my life? I'm not, I'm not in debt to sin. I'm not in that slave market of sin anymore. It does not determine my destiny because the wages of sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does he say? What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. God's compassion is going to focus in on my debt of sin. So look again at Psalm 103, because we're going to see this again. Verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will, not allow, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, the wages that we deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Remember the man who died, he revered the Lord. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. In other words, he knows we are needy. He knows we are needy. You don't need to pretend that you're an island, captain of your destiny, whatever you want to say. He knows us, and he knows that we are needy. And the good news is, he has compassion on us. How do I know that? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave. He had compassion upon me and you who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to talk briefly because it's an important thought to understand what it means to be justified, justification. So let's talk about that, and, and you can use an illustration. I would use this uh, as a, an illustration of a, a, um, an accountant's ledger. So often you might have debits, and on the other side you have credits. So let's see what we have on our screen, if we can put the, um, the next one up on justification. Here we go. So uh, debits and credits. Now, sometimes people would say, Justification, this is kind of a Sunday school type definition. Justification means just as if I've never sinned. And that's a nice rhyme. It's not really theologically accurate. But here's what that would look like on the debits and credit. So if you go to the next screen, on the debit, it would be nil, just as if I'd never sinned. Here's my debts, nothing. Now, what are on my credits? My credits would be nil as well because my righteousness is as filthy rags. You see the problem? So what does biblical justification look like? So we'll look at that on the next screen. Biblical justification says, my debts are paid. My debts are paid. The wages of sin is death, but that is paid off. Who paid for it? Jesus Christ, when he purchased me on the cross and he paid the debt of my sin. Debt-free. Debt-free. I'm not talking about Australian citizenship, American citizenship. I'm talking about in the citizenship of heaven, debt-free. Now, the next part, what's the credit? The credit is what? Of course, Christ's righteousness. So how does God view me? He sees that my sins are forgiven, and he sees that I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. To be justified, to be biblically justified, is an amazing thing. 
Because not only are my sins forgiven, I've got this double blessing, my sins are forgiven, but I also have the righteousness of Christ imputed, given to me. What an amazing thing. Now, you may say, oh, I read that story before, but I don't think I had anything in common with, with the widow. Yes, you do. A double curse, but if you're in Christ Jesus, you've got this double blessing. Debt's paid in life, eternal life. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. The amazing thing to me about this passage is God cares. I mean, here's a, here's a, a nameless widow. Lived a long time ago, but God cares. What about me? What about you? Has that God changed? Does he no longer see me and you in our need? He knows how we are formed. He knows we are dust, but he has compassion on us. One of the things we need to do is be like this widow. When we come to him in need, just bring that that need to him and trust him. Here's what we also know. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's the thing I want to make it very clear to you. How do we receive that, that gift, that justification? We did it in our Subi, uh, scripture at Subi passage. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. This woman is not going to boast in her genius about multiplying olive oil. She's going to boast in the living God who gave her an amazing gift. What do we boast in? An even greater gift. The forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. How does anyone in this world receive it? Well, if it's not by my works or achievements, how can I possibly merit that? And the fact is I don't. We receive it by grace. It's a gift. And we receive it through faith. It is simply put in our trust and hope in Christ alone. If you're here or listening to me right now, and you've never done that, you've never put your faith in Christ, I'm going to give you this opportunity right now. Because there's an amazing blessing for those who seek compassion from God, and he has already provided a solution. And that solution is Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. For the words of this great psalm that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. And your love is demonstrated in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I do pray that you would help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to trust in him. For any who are here, any who are listening to this message, who have not received the grace of God, the gift of God, the forgiveness of God, the hope of God, the justification that comes by grace through faith. I pray that this would be the time where we would seek your face. Trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Savior of sinners, 
died on the cross, buried, rose again the third day, and lives. Father, for any who wish that gift, I pray that they would seek you right now. In Christ's name, amen.